I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal, and this is a Shadows and Shamblers interview. Today we have a special guest, the film editor for episode 5, Lemon Scented You, and episode 6, A Murder of Gods, Stephen Philipson. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Happy to be here. Stephen has worked on several television shows, including Bitten, Orphan Black, and Hannibal. I really like that book, Bitten, and I've watched a bunch of that show. I enjoyed the uh, the adaptation of it. It's cool. And we're both fans of Orphan Black. And weirdly, neither of us has watched Hannibal. So so it's pretty, it's kind of crazy. Although I imagine we'll both have to check it out at this point, being as oh, into yeah. American gods as we are, certainly before season two starts. Yeah, it's 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 a fun show. I mean, it's very very dark. So, <laughs> if you guys are not fans of horror, it's probably not the show for you. That's the whole problem. I have these little kids, and I have to be so careful about what I watch because who knows when they're going to come downstairs and be like, "Dad, what is this? Why is he eating people?" <laughs> yes, no, I have, I have the same issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you get your start doing editing work and working with Brian Fuller on Hannibal? How did all that begin? There was a bit of serendipity involved, actually. Um, yeah, I've been working in Toronto, Ontario, where Hannibal was filmed here in Canada. And mm-hmm. um, I really wanted to get into hour-long television because I could sort of see that, um, you know, that there was a lot of interesting stuff happening in one hour. But at that time, I had really only done uh, independent features, six or seven of those, sort of low-budget things, and a bunch of half hours. But I just kind of decided to take a bit of a risk and just not take any jobs unless they were TV one hours. And um, I think what ended up happening actually is because it was quite busy in Toronto at the time and I was sort of doing my research and realizing that um, sort of the key editors were were busy. Hannibal was a bit late in the season. I Honestly, I think I was, well, just lucky in the sense that everyone else was busy at that time. (laughs) Um, But I was very lucky. I had gotten in touch with um, the post-production supervisor of Hannibal, somebody called Tim King. And and I'd been on his radar. And it's funny, I never considered that I would be sort of in the mix for Hannibal at all. That, that was a big surprise. But I guess because I was sort of front of mind for Tim and he needed somebody right away. And they, the decision that uh, came through at the very last minute to hire Canadian editors rather than send everything back to L.A. for posts. And I just happened hmm. to be in the right place at the right time. Oh, that's awesome. Are there lots of places that you can work as an editor besides L.A.? I guess I had sort of assumed that almost everything was happening there. No, there is certainly a lot of stuff that happens in LA. A lot of the shows that, you know, you may have heard of Runaway Production, shows that sort of shoot elsewhere due to more favorable tax conditions or tax breaks, or in our case, uh, up in Canada, the the lower Canadian dollar. Mm -hmm. A lot of those shows that shoot elsewhere tend to still do editing in LA. So it is quite busy in LA, but here in Toronto, where I am right now, there's a lot of work just in Canadian productions such as Orphan Black and Bitten. And you, you are seeing a little bit more of the shows that shoot here, uh, editing here as well. And we also do a lot of stuff from Europe because um, uh, there's a lot of co-production treaties that we have in Canada. So yeah, we're very lucky. We have a very thriving post industry here in Toronto. And I'm lucky. I'm actually a Canadian-American dual citizen. So I'm able to work you know, without any barriers in Canada and the US. So I, I have started oh, working nice. a little bit more in Los Angeles as well. Have you worked editing like actual film and how does that process differ from working with digital footage? Uh, wow, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, it's, um, 
I have very, very early in my career in film school, actually, I, I did a short film where I actually edited on film and used what's called a steam back where you, um, you can sort of watch the actual reels of film and figure out where you want to cut and actually cut it and tape it together. And I mean, there's something that I really liked about that in the sense that it's very tactile to kind of actually take pieces of film and cut them together and, and work with your hands. But I mean, it's a very slow process. I don't, I, it would have taken us years to edit American Gods <laughs> in that way. Um, so I haven't, I haven't really done it beyond just a couple of shorts here and there. But um, no, I mean, I do miss film. I, mo- most stuff now, I think, tends to be shot digital. There's, there's a few projects that still shoot film, but it would add a huge amount of time and money to the budget to actually cut on film. So it's, I, I think at this point, it's very rare that that happens. And it sounds like you guys had a lot of delays in editing to begin with. Like it was already getting really backed up without having that kind of added time. Oh, yeah. Well, I think a big part of our process was um, just having the ability to try things very quickly with Brian because we get very limited time with him. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's a very busy guy. So, you know, when he's in the room, I mean, we have to be able to to just try a whole bunch of different ways of approaching a scene very, very quickly to, you know, just to be able to explore a lot of the different things that he wanted to try and that we wanted to try. And it's just a sort of an essential part of how he works is, is being able to experiment quickly. So I think film would have made that extremely difficult. <laughs> Was there like a big difference in his approach on uh, Hannibal versus like American Gods in editing style or visual language? I think, I mean, in terms of our working style, it, w- it was very similar, the approach that we did for Hannibal. I mean, I would say we went in that direction a lot of times. I mean, the biggest difference between the two shows, I think from an editing point of view, is American Gods just has so many different styles. I mean, if you think of the, the uh, opening show, I mean, it starts out as almost like an action comedy, really. Um, mm-hmm. Quite gory and violent action comedy. But um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we have scenes like that. We have very dreamlike, ethereal scenes. Episode five is very much a character drama in many ways, but it still has a dreamlike tone to it. Whereas in Hannibal, we sort of tended to stick to a very sort of elegant horror style. In American Gods, I mean, we have elements of horror and and we have a certain elegance to everything, but then we do, we have these comic moments and we have these action moments as well too. So I think in American Gods, we were able to kind of weave in a lot of different styles besides just sort of the basic elegant horror style that I know Brian's known for. We had a question from one of our listeners, Jean E, who was asking about the process of adding in the score and the music um, from Brian Reitzel. What is the process, I guess, of working with him to add the music to the episode? Um, Because the music in American Gods is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Like, do you get to give him feedback and say like, no, I think we need something here instead of there. Sort of like, what, what is the, the give and take between you and Brian? Well, I mean, it's really a, a sort of a pass the torch scenario on this show. I know we sort of finished the episode so that, you know, the rhythm of the cutting is sort of where we want it. And he really takes that and just kind of runs with it. So we don't, unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of back and forth kind of after the episode is locked. Um, I mean, we do a sort of a temporary score in the room to help Brian and the other producers kind of 
this is Brian Fuller, not Brian Reitzel, obviously, to help them mm -hmm. get a sort of a sense of, <laughs> of the tone and the music that they're looking for. And then, and then we hand it off and he, um, he has his own process, which I find very fascinating and I would love to be more involved in, but um, it hasn't happened. There's, there was a, a few times actually where we sort of felt that there needed to be a kind of a key a key sound or a key song. I mean, uh, two examples in Lemon Scented You, the, um, the scene where media plays David Bowie in the limo. In that case, oh, yeah. yeah, we were sort of looking for a song ahead of time. We didn't end up using the song that we had chosen in the editing process, but I think it did quite influence the sound that Brian eventually went with. Uh, and then the other thing was um, in episode six, Murder of Gods, when when we go to the, the forge and we have the factory worker falling off the catwalk into the vat of molten metal that we, <laughs> we worked with him a lot to, we went through a lot of different options for songs um, for that sequence. And, and we did work with him a lot in that sequence for sure. Really? So, so it was the Partridge family theme song that that scene that you're talking about happens to like, what were some of the other things that you guys were looking at? Uh, I had the idea to use um, Singing in the Rain at one point. Um, and there was a few other songs like that that were very iconic. Sure. That we, we wanted to kind of use the, the iconic nature of it that everyone knows and loves and kind of flip it on its head. So Singing in the Rain was an option. But mm -hmm. uh, sadly, the people who owned the rights to a lot of our original choices didn't want to have their song playing while somebody uh, burnt it up. <laughs> In molten metal, so that's great. Um, yeah, I can see how that would yeah. be a problem. <laughs> I love the cover that he did in that episode of "I'll Put a Spell on You," which is has like such a great sound all on its own, and is this kind of wild song. The original recording of it, I really love the way that that song plays in that episode. Was that one of the temp tracks, or did he make that choice? Yeah, that I believe came from Brian Fuller. We were, yeah, it did. We were looking for, um, for a piece to use over that sequence. And I think we, yeah, we went, we were going through Brian Fuller's collection on his iPhone in the editing room. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So here's a question from at is Hannibal on yet. Okay. So you can imagine <laughs> how they uh, found us and are probably already a fan of yours, even if they don't know it. And they were wondering if you learned or experimented with any new editing approaches or techniques in American Gods that you didn't do on other projects. Uh, you know, I don't think there's anything specifically that we sort of developed just for the show. I mean, I, I think I brought a lot of stuff that we tried on Hannibal. You know, I think we use a lot of dissolves in the beginning of... Um, well, in episode six specifically, I know I did, I sort of made it a little bit more of a dreamlike feel. I mean, that was sort of stuff that we'd done on Hannibal. And there's a few little things here and there, but I think overall we tried to, I guess, use the material in, in the best ways as we could. And Well, it sounds like you were well-equipped for American Gods. Like you just, you knew your thing and, you know, you knew how Brian liked to work and you were able to apply those techniques to American Gods, so even though it does have a different yeah. tone, like you said. Yeah. You know? Well, I think, yeah. And I think if, if there's anything about the show that sort of makes it unique is, 
again, like I said earlier, just that we were able to draw from so many different styles and sort of mix them all together into one show, but have it still be a co coherent show. I think that was sort of the, from our standpoint, creatively, the biggest challenge was just, um, yeah, making it all work as sort of the unique show that it is that, that can have all these different styles coexisting. It really helps the show. So I have a, a kind of related question in that I think there's kind of a spectrum of editing, right? There's like editing that is trying to make itself super invisible um, so you don't even really notice it. And then editing that is kind of trying to call attention mm -hmm. to itself. Where do you kind of see American Gods falling on that spectrum? Or do you think different parts of the episode have sort of used the different approaches? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, I would say we do. We I think we use whichever approach seems appropriate at the time. I mean, I think ultimately our goal is the same as any other show. We, I mean, we really want to just engage the viewer as much as possible, sort of draw them into the show and um, just present the story in as sort of a energy, energetic and dynamic fashion as best we can and, and do our best to kind of accentuate story beats that we feel need accentuating and, and all those kind of things. Um, and, you know, there are certain times where that calls for editing that calls attention to itself a little bit more. I know there's a couple of sequences in, in episode six, you know, we tried to make things a little bit more jarring, a little bit more energetic, and maybe you do sort of notice and feel the changes. And, and then I know in Lemon Scented You, I'm, I, we really wanted to go into um, just the psychology of Shadow and Laura. And I, you know, for a lot of their conversations, they, their sort of epic reunion scene at the beginning of the show, for example, we didn't really want people to be thinking about editing then. We just really wanted everyone to be kind of wrapped up in, in their story and what's going on between them and all the, the kind of emotional conflict they're having there and, and Shadow mm. having to deal with his dead wife being there in front of them. So... <laughs> Yeah, it really varies. Speaking of Laura, do you know anything about the decision to make her her own storyline and really expand her role? Or was that all sort of handed? I, to well, you? I know a little bit. I, unfortunately, I wasn't in the writer's room because I was in the cutting room at the time. But uh, sometimes <laughs> what happens in the process, because again, Brian and Michael are so busy. A lot of times us editors are privy to a little bit of what's going on on the rest of the show as they're discussing it in the room. And, and I, I as far as I know, I think with Emily, the sense that I got was really the reason why Laura figured a little bit more prominently in the final show than she did in the original pitch was just all Emily Browning. I think the moment she walked into the room and started her performance, I think everyone fell in love with her and, and realized that um, there was just a lot of emotional depth to be mined there. I know I, I heard a few conversations where they were sort of trying to figure out what to do with the later episodes because the first four or five were mostly written when I came on board. But, you know, the episodes where Emily figures more prominently, Laura and Matt Sweeney, mm -hmm. I, I know they were responding to some of the early scenes between them in the room and even in the cutting room and just saying, wow, these two are so great together. Let's do an episode all about Laura. And that's what they did. So, yeah, it was really just seeing that the chemistry between the actor playing Matt Sweeney and Emily Browning, the actor playing Laura Muin, like seeing the chemistry between them and really just realizing there was a lot of great stuff to be mined there. 
that's so cool that yeah. the that the actors influenced kind of the direction of the story and the writing. That's uh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, it's kind of what you expect on on longer TV shows where you mm. have twenty two episodes, and so of course you know like things are being written based on how the actors are portraying things and you sort of play to their strength. But it's kind of amazing that they were even able to do this on on such a short run mm-hmm. of a first season. Yeah. And when you say the early episodes were written, but not the later ones, when you came on, they were still planning for 10 episodes. But then we know that things got chopped down to eight and there were some pretty big changes to later in the season. How did that affect your episodes? Uh, well, it kind of affected me in two ways. It's a bit of a funny story. So, um, originally when I came on board, I was hired to do three episodes and, um, I oh, no. plotted out my life based on this idea that I was going to be in LA for a certain amount of time doing these three episodes. And, uh, at the time, this was before I knew that we were going to um, be doing a lot of our work sort of later. And in fact, I ended up being on the show way longer than expected. At the time, I was sort of trying to figure out what my next job was going to be. And we were working on episode six in the cutting room. And again, it was one of those moments where I was privy to a conversation. And, you know, Brian and Michael were just sort of discussing what to do with, with the final episode, which I was slated to edit. And they just kind of casually said, you know, maybe it's going to work a little bit better if we devote some of these resources to the earlier episodes and just not do an episode 10. It was well, 10 at the time. And Mike was like, yeah, good idea. Okay, good. All right. And then we were like, went back to it. Meanwhile, I'm like, oh my God, like what's going to happen to my life? I'm all of a sudden like everything's in disarray. So I panicked a little bit, but I think it all worked out in in the end. I think as, as sort of out there now, I mean, it was a great, best decision possible for the show. And it worked out fine for me in the end, and then I got to stay longer. But it did affect my episodes in that, um, in fact, when they were shot, well, episode five, when it was shot, that was supposed to be the episode where Shadow discovered who Wednesday really was. Um, And so that ended up getting pushed later in the season. And uh, so we had to reconfigure a lot of stuff based on that. We had to cut a, a huge sequence out of episode five and write a new scene for episode six so that that arc made sense and and we had to shuffle things a little bit based on that but again i I just think it was the right decision for the show and and you know it's exciting for us editors to be involved in that process and and to to watch all this the story arcs and and threads kind of come together that's so funny that the Odin reveal was going to be in episode five, because that's kind of how we covered it in our analysis. We're like, finally, we can stop pretending that Wednesday is anybody other than Odin and it's all out on the table. And then the next episode comes and, and uh, shadow is like, who are you? What is this? And he's like, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And then we're like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> like he's clearly <laughs> Odin. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I should specify, I don't think it was revealed that Wednesday was Odin in that episode specifically, but no, um, no, it was, him. yeah, it, I mean, it was more, he sort of took the time to lay out shadow. Here's, you know, I'm a God and, and this is the world. And it, it actually tied in very well with the, um, the scene at the very beginning of episode five, the uh, animated sequence that it was sort of like a bookend, mm-hmm. which we were sad to lose. But then I, I feel like, in the context of the series, it worked a lot better. So, 
Did you get to be on the set at all during filming? A little bit, not as much as I would have liked, but I did, I started work in Toronto where it was filmed here in Canada. The first episode that I did uh, was directed by somebody called Vincenzo Natale. I've worked with Vincenzo a little bit before. We'd worked together on Hannibal on a bunch of episodes and when I was originally hired and it was decided that I would work on that episode, we discussed the logistics of me staying in Toronto a little bit longer and just being around while he was shooting. And I think that was a great idea. And so I worked with him a little bit in the cutting room in the studio where it was filmed, which was great. And, um, you know, I was able to pop down to set if need be, if I needed to talk to our second unit director about something or something like that. I mean, it was great to have that, um, those open lines of communication, but the rest of the post was done in Los Angeles. So I moved down to LA Oh, okay. I think it was last July after they finished filming episode five. And then I spent the rest of the time down there. And it's funny. I mean, it was good to be in Los Angeles from the standpoint that we were very close to the visual effects team, which turned out to be a huge blessing because we worked very closely with them. How did that work with um, studio with the Tendril studio who did that big uh, animated sequence in the beginning? Like, do you have editorial control over that or did they kind of like have an in-house editor and they were like, here's the completely finished product. You just, you know, tag it onto the episode. Yeah, it was a little of each. Um, it was a very interesting process and because it actually took Tendril five months to do uh, what they did. They're fantastic work. Obviously, it, it takes a huge amount of time, as, as I'm sure you guys know from oh, yeah. animated features and stuff. So um, it's, they actually worked very closely with um, Vincenzo Natale. He storyboards everything very, very thoroughly. So he basically, he actually did a lot of the original storyboards for that sequence, handed it over to them. I mean, we didn't hear much about it for months. And then we started getting uh, what's called animatics, which are sort of rough versions of the sequence with stick figures rather than the fully developed art. Um, so that mm -hmm. you get a sense of where all the characters are going to be and how the movement's going to be. And once we started getting those, I put them in my timeline. So we, we basically got a full sequence and I mean, it takes so long to change animation. We didn't really change much, but what our, what we did was we sort of trimmed it down a little bit um, at the animatic stage so that it flowed a little bit better. And then I basically just went through and made sure all the edits sort of matched my editing style. So, you know, trimming a little bit here and there. And then Brian uh, Fuller wanted it to be a little bit tighter, which makes a lot of sense. So we probably adjusted the rhythm of it, maybe took out a few shots, but we didn't change it that much. Uh, it was mostly Tendril taking Vincenzo's storyboards and um, uh, basically creating a sequence and then sending us the sequence. That's cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. I actually never met the people from Tendril until a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, oh, I just happened to be at a party in Toronto and finally met them face to face. They're, they're really great. I think you'll see more of them in the next little while. They did fantastic work. So there are a lot of scenes in American Gods and in your episode specifically where we're cutting back and forth between mm -hmm. two different storylines. So like Shadow and Wednesday at the police station and then Laura and Sweeney back at the hotel room. What are the, the kinds of things that you're thinking about as you're trying to make those sort of cutting back and forth between two different storylines work? Yeah, it's funny. In my two episodes, um, 
you know, the, the basic structure of the episodes isn't that different, really. I mean, it, um, you know, as we discussed, we did end up sort of moving around Shadow's arc a little bit in terms of when, how much he knows about Odin and Wednesday. No, I know in working with Brian in the past, I mean, he is very, very open to huge structural changes in post. I mean, he, he, once he sees things together, he's happy to experiment with, with anything if it makes the show stronger, really, which is exciting for us. And I mean, I have done a lot of sort of rewriting in post with him in the past, and I'm sure we will again. I know they did a lot on the earlier episodes. Yeah, I would, I, I think on episode five, that's funny, when I started on that, the show was still evolving and changing. So it is, it's, it was a bit of a tricky process. Like I was trying to make the best episode that I could. And uh, so I was focusing a lot on making Wednesday's arc strong because originally he had this big reveal at the end of the episode. But then when that moved to another episode, it sort of changed a lot of the work that I'd done and to make the episode feel like an episode as a whole. But at that point, we had a much stronger idea of what the series was and what it needed to be. So to answer your question, I, th- I think at the very beginning, I was trying to make an episode that was cohesive and sort of enjoyable as, as an episode. But then by the end, I was more focusing on how the episode slotted into the series arc as a whole, which is really exciting because you sort of see the series evolve into what it's going to be as you're working on it. And um, yeah, I mean, it's your work sort of starts out in a sort of a sealed bubble where you're just trying to make your scenes and your episode as strong as they possibly can be. And then by the end of it, you're really part of a team. That's one of those hallmarks of the prestige television right now, too, especially on these paid networks where it's highly serialized and the tone and themes kind of arc across, you know, the entire season. That's pretty cool that your focus shifted in that way and that you were there long enough to oversee that in into a really cohesive thing because episode five really is that turning point it's all set up before that and then it's kind of like you're at the top of that roller coaster and then it's downhill after that yeah yeah it's it's sort of the first i would say almost interior episode in that we really start to go into the characters mindsets Mm -hmm. you know especially in the, the first few scenes with shadow and Laura, I mean, we're really focusing on the psychology of what's going on between them and we're trying to get in their minds as much as we can and, and get into the psychology of what's happening between them and their emotional conflict. There in episode five, I did have a question about Mr. World because every time that I watch it, there's like this really cool effect that I'm not sure I've ever seen before. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe there's like a technical name and you could tell me, but like when he moves, it feels like everything is moving except for him. I don't know. Like he has like this strong effect on the world in visual terms. Um, And I wasn't sure if that's like an after effect, if that was a camera effect that the director was doing an editing trick or what's going on there, but it was so (laughs) cool. Well, thank you. That's actually something I totally came up with myself in the cutting room. So, are you serious? <laughs> that's so awesome! Oh, that's yeah. awesome! No, I, mean, I love it. Oh, great, cool. No, I'm. Uh, uh, if you want me to give away all my editing tricks, um, oh no, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> no, it's well, I'll I'll um, spill the beans. Basically, what we did or what I did, because I, I, it's such an intense, powerful moment when Mister World comes in, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, working with Brian for a long time, I know that he really likes sort of an elegant aesthetic and I know that moment really called for it. So what happened was the shot had, had, a, had some bumps in it. Like it wasn't totally smooth, but you know, it could have been a little bit smoother. And mm-hmm. so I was sort of playing around with this tool called the stabilize tool, which basically like it sort of analyzes the frame and uh, what it can do is it can kind of move the frame just slightly to compensate for camera bumps and smooth it out. And basically what I did is I, I played around with that for a little while and I realized if I took a point on Mr. World's, well, in this case, I used his lapel where his tie is. Like I said to the computer, basically, keep that point exactly level. When I did that, if you watch it very carefully, his tie is fixed in the same position using the stabilize tool. Huh. And so everything else kind of bounces around that. And I just, it sort of, when I first saw it, I was like, well, it kind of speaks to the moment. I mean, first of all, it, it emphasizes the sort of intensity of Mr. World's stare that he's sort of fixed in the middle of the camera. And it does, like you said, mm-hmm. it gives you that sense that he's sort of the, the center the center of the world or the, and the focus of everything and the world's changing around him, which was cool. And I, I put that in there and Michael and Brian liked it right away and we just left it in there and there it is. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. We did have a question related to that scene from Stevie Dieter uh, on Twitter at SMD. He asked, uh, how difficult was the interrogation room scene to edit? Were the scenes filmed start to finish or did effects require stitching them together? You know, we're kind of transitioning from one interrogation room to the other. So were you like building one scene completely and then intercutting or were you always moving from one to the other? Uh, yeah, no, I think it was filmed mostly in in sequence. Uh, I mean, it's a huge eight minute scene. So making it interesting for that long was a uh was a challenge but it you know it's funny that's one thing where it actually was advantageous that i was in toronto because i mean it was literally it was filmed as a conventional scene and you know when media and mr world do their powerpoint presentation with uh, the rocket ships (laughs) on the walls and everything that there's very few visual effects there it's really what they did is they actually built a sort of a little set next to the main set that was identical to the main set except the walls were video screens and we had um what we brought in yeah we brought in like a an expert uh in visual projection and did a whole bunch of tests and we just projected the animation on the wall and shot it i it's funny the biggest thing about that scene was there were a lot of reshoots in that scene after we decided to reconfigure the storyline a little bit because there's a bunch of stuff in there that originally didn't make sense or or that wouldn't have made sense with the new arc of shadow finding out about Wednesday a little bit later. So that was one of those scenes where I worked on it a lot at the beginning and it was done for a long time. But then months later, when we realized we had to change the story, we went and we reshot a lot of new elements. And I feel like I was working on it for a really long time. (laughs) But uh, I did want to ask real quick about Um, in episode six, there's this really cool, I think it's in episode six, there's this really cool, um, transition where the cars are like driving along a map. It it looks kind of like the, the board game life or something like that. The cars split off and go in different directions. 
and then we go like into Vulcan, at, you know, behind the car. So how does that work? Is that in the script? Is that something like, would you be able to pitch to the director or to Brian and be like, I've got this cool idea for a transition? Like, where does it come from? Uh, what's great about Brian is really he's open to ideas from wherever they come from. I think in that case, <laughs> I think what happened was that it was discussed in a... Um, what's called a tone meeting, which they do before they start shooting, where they have the director and um, mm -hmm. Brian and the editors are sometimes there and they're sometimes not, depending on the schedule. I don't think I was there for this one. They sort of discuss ideas of how they want to represent things visually. And I, I believe Brian pitched it at that tone meeting, I think. Brian was very, very busy after that. We didn't know for a while exactly what he had wanted to do with the map. So I, I was trying to just talk to different people and th there was this rumor going around that he wanted it to look like this or that or whatever. So in the end, what I did was um, I just took my iPhone and uh, we had this map of uh, the US in our office. You know, I was talking to a few people from the visual effects team who were working on it, who were working with a, a concept for the map. And they were sort of saying, well, we were thinking this and that. and. I had some ideas as well. So I just ended up taking my iPhone and filming this map in my room really, really close up and just kind of trying to get the movement. I mean, it was very shaky, but I just <laughs> took that, put that in my computer. And then um, I just crudely animated a couple of little cars sort of over top to just to try to get a sense of how it would look. And <laughs> it kind of ended up looking like the Uber app. Okay. <laughs> like a really shaky version of the Uber app, like these little cars kind of moving around. <laughs> but then the animation team sort of took that and worked with it. And, and we used that in the episode just to get the timing right so that we, we would get the music or just have a sense of how the music was going to go and how the scenes were going to cut in and out of it. And yes, yeah, so when I was done, the episode was sort of playing on normally. And then all of a sudden, this kind of weird little shaky Uber map appeared for seven <laughs> or eight seconds or however long it was, and then it went back to my normal cutting. And then the visual effects team went from there and, and made it into what you see in the show. And Brian was very involved in visual effects after I was done. I mean, he was literally working with the effects team every day. So uh, they did a lot of creative work after I'd finished, but based on the timing that we'd established in the editing room. So... Oh, cool. Yeah, so it lined up music. Yeah, because there's a big musical transition and stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah. And that's always the challenge. I mean, we need to know how that musical transition is going to work. So that when we hand it off to Brian Reitzel, he writes something that fits in the slot well and, and that, you know, it's going to sort of take us from point A to point B and the timing's all going to match because we need to know that ahead of time for sound. But obviously the visual effects take, you know, they can take months to to finish. So... I'm not sure how long my version was in there as a guide, but um, yeah, at some point they, they decided to replace it with what you see on air, which was probably a wise choice. One of the joys of editing, I guess, is seeing the episode kind of take shape and, you know, slowly as you're working on it, they're slowly replacing those with more and more complete versions of the final effects. So you sort of witness the transformation from our our bizarre kind of sketch of what it's going to be into what it actually is and on a show like this it's, i mean that's always fascinating yeah there's so many special effects yeah what do you think it takes to be a good editor um what kind of people would you recommend try to become editors and do you have any advice or recommendations for people who might want to become editors 
I would say my biggest piece of advice for people who want to become editors is just try to edit as much as you can. I mean, personally, I think the way I sort of started out was I went to um, a film school here in Canada called the Canadian Film Center, which is sort of the Canadian version of the American Film Institute in LA, AFI. And I just met a lot of uh, really great emerging writers and directors and tried to edit as many of their short films as possible and tried to stay focused editing the kind of stuff that I wanted to do in terms of drama. I mean, obviously at first you've got to basically work for, uh, work for free for a, a lot of different things. But yeah, just try to stay focused doing what you love to do. The type of people who make good editors are very, there's a sort of a diplomacy side to it that I think a lot of people don't always think about in the sense that, um, especially in television and, and, you know, in the cutting room, you've got so many different people contributing to the final show. And, and um, you know, a lot of times they have their own ideas about how things are. And really, you're sort of, you're, you're almost, you're advocating for the show in this kind of crazy process where you're basically trying to just take writers, producers, directors, showrunner, and trying to take the best of everybody of their work and, sort of putting it all together in a way that is really true to the showrunner's vision. And then finding a way of putting your own stamp on it within all that and making it feel like a sort of a co cohesive whole. So it's really, I guess it's just taking sort of all sorts of different things from different places and that serves the showrunner's vision. So I think a big part of the collaborative process, right, is sort of like you make a rough cut of an episode, you send it out and then you get back all of these notes Mm -hmm. And then sort of you having to figure out what notes to say yes to, what notes to say no to, what notes you're sort of like, okay, I see the spirit, but I think it could be better implemented in a different way. And I, and I guess the, that process probably varies a lot between network TV and maybe the cable channels. Yeah. On Hannibal, I mean, I think Brian has such a specific, unique vision and, and what he brings to it is sort of his own attention to detail and what he does that, I mean, we don't get a lot of notes from anybody except Brian. Really, I, I mean, we do, uh, Michael as well. In terms of, um, you know, the network or stars or whatever, I mean, I, I think in, in both cases with NBC and stars, I mean, they really trusted Brian to create something unique. And so, I mean, I, I wouldn't get a lot of stuff, which which is it's a bit new to me. I mean, it makes it a lot easier in the sense that there's only one person that I have to at the end of the day, who really has to be happy. And I mean, the great thing about working with Brian and Michael is they're so collaborative, so open to ideas that, um, you know, you never feel like a button pusher. Like you always feel like you're part of a conversation of how to make the show as, as great as it can be, which is really exciting. But yeah, you know, on both my episodes and on Hannibal as well, I, I don't think we had a lot of crazy network notes that were out of touch with what we were doing in the cutting room, which can happen. <laughs> Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess if, the, <laughs> if your show is like about a serial killer cannibal or, you know, like based on a book that has a woman eating people with her vagina, it's like the, <laughs> the, the network kind of knows what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. yeah. One thing I definitely don't miss from um, working on American Gods is uh, it's called Standards and Practices Notes, which you get on network shows and on NBC as well, where they have people who go through the show and basically 
they listen to the audio and if there's anything that could possibly be construed as a swear, even if somebody says shh and then somebody else says it at the same time, you get all these notes saying, please remove shit from here or there. What, this is, yeah, I mean, they're <laughs> really crazy. concerned that there's going to be something in there that somebody's going to complain about. So in Hannibal, the problem was, I mean, we could show all sorts of violence and evisceration and guts and whatever, but if we showed even part of a nipple or part of a butt crack, that would be a huge problem. And so they'd go through and flag <laughs> all these Damn. things that could be construed as nudity, and we'd have to either darken it so you couldn't see it or paint them out. I don't know. It was all very bizarre. But <laughs> to Stars' credit on American Gods, they wanted to push the envelope a lot. And, and um, yes, we didn't obviously get any standards and practices notes. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell us what projects you're working on now? If we want to keep an eye out for your work, uh, what should we be looking for? After American Gods, I worked on a show called 10 Days in the Valley, which is um, a network show for ABC starring Kira Sedgwick. Um, that is pretty much the exact opposite of American Gods in every way, shape, or form. <laughs> but um, but I no, it's a, it's a great show. I think it did. It, I, it probably appeals to a different audience, but um, uh, I don't like to get sort of pigeonholed into one genre. So it was exciting for me to work, just work on something completely different as a bit of a palate cleanser. But um, yeah, no, I'm heading down to Los Angeles in a few weeks to hopefully figure out what I'm doing for the fall. And then very much hoping, fingers crossed, that I'll be back in the cutting room with Brian and the gang um, in 2018 for season two. And if people would like to check you out online, do you have a website, uh, a Twitter, or Facebook, or anything like that? Uh, I mean, I have a website it's just for employers, basically, but um, it does have a few clips on it. It's um, www.stephenphillipson.com. So thanks for listening, and uh, keep an eye out because we have two more episodes before we break from season one. We're going to have the Laura Moon episode, um, and then we're going to have a season one wrap-up. I'm Anya, a.k.a. Strangely Literal, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you saw any nipples or butt cracks that you need us to edit out, you can visit <laughs> shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Great. Oh, no problem. No, it's been a pleasure. Samblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. <laughs>